Morning. Hey, I'm going to invite our uh, ushers to come for our, uh, as, as part of our worship, uh, we, we have this concept in Scripture called stewardship, and, and stewardship has to do with our, our time that uh, is really God's, all of it, our, our talent, which is God's, uh, and, and our treasure, everything that we own. And uh, one of the practices of that is, um, is that we uh, give weekly and so if you, if you call Timberline Church your home, I would ask you to um, continue in your faithfulness. If you're just a guest, please, uh, this isn't for you. We just ask you to be our guest at this time. So ushers, you can go ahead and pass those if you would. A um, couple announcements real quickly. Uh, first thing is we're having a 10-day um, donation drive in our cafe, and this is for Living Water uh, International. Uh, basically, what we're doing is for 10 days, if, for, for every cup of coffee you buy, we would, we would encourage you to, to throw in an extra dollar, and this goes toward creating fresh water for people um, around the world in places which, which do not have one of the most basic things that we take for granted when we turn a faucet or, or hit a water fountain, and that's clean water. It's, just a, it's a significant way that we can make an impact in our world and then open doors and create platforms for us to, 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 to talk about the message of Christ. So kind of a fun thing that's on the back of your bulletin. The second thing which impacts us, if you're planning on coming next week and you come to this room, you will be by yourself. Well, maybe one other person who doesn't listen will be in here with you, but this is important. Listen, um, next week and from here on out, our, our adult service is going to be meeting no longer in our main auditorium. Um, if you've been to our South Auditorium, which is right across the hall from us here, we're going to be having our adult service in there. And um, I'm really excited about that. That, that setting, um, just for a number of reasons, I think is going to better facilitate the kind of community that we're looking to build in our midweek uh, adult service, okay? So next week, where will you show up at 645? Here. South Auditorium. Don't say here. That's bad. South Auditorium. I heard someone say here. South Auditorium, okay? We'll try to put signs on the doors and, and that sort of thing, and I'm sure somebody, you know, I might forget. I might walk in here, but, but we'll, be, we'll be in the South Auditorium. Like I said, it's right across the hall over there. So it'll be, again, just kind of a, a fun, different setting for us to be in from here on out. Um, how, many, how many of you have noticed that in Jesus' interactions with people, he often goes, uh, insistently, he goes beneath the surface of the iceberg in people's lives. You remember this, this situation where, where Jesus interacts with this, this woman, the Samaritan woman? She's at the well, and he, he keeps asking these why questions. Remember that? He says, like, why are you here in the middle of the day? You see, because all the other women, they come early. You're alone. Why, why are you intentionally not trying to be around other people? Why? Why have you been married multiple times? Why is your current lifestyle like this? Why? He, he goes beneath the iceberg of the surface of, their, of, of her life with this why question. Likewise, with the Pharisees, so often, he, he doesn't let them stay on the external, the outside, right? And, and he pushes down, he talks about this whole heart thing as he goes deeper in their life. He's asking this, uh, the power of why, what's going on beneath the, the surface of your life? Um, and I think it's, it's easier not to go there. Um, we're, as we walk toward this road of what we're calling this emotionally healthy spirituality, it, it can be a dangerous ride for a number of reasons. Um, it it, it kind of takes us far away from the shore of, of what we're used to and what's normal, of, of where we feel safe. 
But I would suggest that it's only there in our discipleship with Christ that God can really uh, transform where, where we can have access to, is maybe is a better way to say it, that, that deepest part of, of who we are, our hearts. And, and, and here's why the, the deepest part of us, our heart, is so important. Jesus talked about um, the hope that your innermost part, the, the deepest part of who you and I are, could actually be transformed. Um, listen to how he says it in John 7, 37. He's at this festival, and, and, and this is a Jewish festival, and it, and it speaks of God meeting their needs. Remember, uh, so many of the um, celebrations that, that the Jewish people uh, enacted were, were this idea to, to remind them of what God had done in the past, but to also say he's going to be faithful in the future, and he's going to fulfill these basic needs of ours. And so it says, on the last, this is in John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, I love this, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Isn't that neat? Rivers of living water. Wouldn't you like to have rivers of living water flow from within you? I love the way the King James, if you've ever read the King James, it, it, translates, that, it translates to that word belly. It says, he that believeth in me, as scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, belly. That's, that's the core, in that ancient English, that's the core of who we are. Anyone ever notice that, that our, our culture today is, is like obsessed, is, is focused on like our physical core? You know how, I mean, everything, all exercise programs, advertisements you see on TV, if it's, if it's selling things, it's not so much the thigh master anymore, this, but it's your core. Anything that can work out your core, right, that's the key. Listen to the, uh, the Harvard Health Publications newsletter. This came out like in January, earlier in the year, um, on, on this whole idea of benefits of strengthening your core. They wrote, think of your core muscles as the sturdy central link in a chain connecting your upper and lower body. Whether you're hitting a tennis ball or mopping the floor, the necessary motions either originate in your core or move through your core. Um, in our culture, everything's about this, you know, core physically, right? People are judged by, do you have these sterling six-pack abs, right? Abdominal muscles. Go ahead and lift up your shirt and show your neighbor your abs. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm kidding. We're in this series of emotional, healthy spirituality with this idea that the only way for God to access our core, our belly, Jesus' word, our, our heart, this the central place of who we are, is if we do the difficult work of exploring beneath the iceberg of the surface of our lives, going to those deepest places. So we've said that what, we're, what we need to do along with this going beneath the surface, which is this first principle we looked at, we also need to examine our past and break the power that it has as we look at being involved in a new family, being reparented in the family of God. We looked at this third principle of how do I live in brokenness and vulnerability, right? that once I've done that, can I be a person who is transparent about who I am, about the reality of my life, that it's not all together. And then last week, we talked about this idea of receiving the gift of limits. Can I live within the specific gifts that God has given me and not trying to go outside of that in my life? But as a result of sometimes those limits and sometimes other things, we grieve, right? Because we had other dreams. We had other desires, maybe that are not met. And so this principle that we're going to look at tonight, grief and loss, expanding our soul 
through grief and loss, I think can be one of the most difficult ones of, uh, in the, of these steps toward emotional, healthy spirituality because it's painful to go there, right? Who wants to go toward grief? I mean, no one, most of us don't want to live there on a regular basis. But here's the thing. Often when we do follow Jesus below the surface, when we're willing to take that, that risk, we find deep pain, don't we? We find hurt, and that's troubling. Uh, Nicholas Walterstorff is, is this brilliant philosopher guy. He's, he, he has like appointments at Yale. He's got a PhD from, from Harvard University. And um, he, he wrote a, a book a number of years ago called, called uh, Lament for a Son. His 25-year-old his, his son, Eric, died on a, on a mountain climbing accident. And let me, let me read for you just a couple statements that he makes when we think about this idea of being willing to go there, owning owning our grief. He writes this. This is a, a writing that he did after that book, Lament for a Son. He said, I now live after, after the death of our son, Eric. My life has been divided into before and after. He loved the mountains, loved them passionately. They lured and beckoned him irresistibly. Born on a snowy night in New Haven, he died 25 years later on a snowy slope in Kaiser Mountain Range, Austria. Never again will anyone inhabit the world the way he did. Only a hole remains, a void, a gap. My son is gone. The ache of loss sinks down and down deep beyond all telling. How deep do souls go? The suffering of the world has worked its way deeper inside me. I never knew that sorrow could be like this. I, I haven't had anything to, uh, to say beyond what I've said already in Lament of a Son. There's a lot of silence in the book, no word too much, I hope. In the face of death, we must not chatter. And when I spoke, I found myself moving often on the edges of language, trying to find images for what only images could say. And he says this, I see now, looking back, that in writing it, I was struggling to own my grief. The modern Western practice is to disown one's grief to get over it, to put it behind one, to get on with life, to put it out of mind, to ensure that it not become part of one's identity. If you want to know who I am, he ends with saying, you must know that I am one whose son died. Isn't that interesting? Um, he says he now realizes that all these explorations, all the wrestling afterwards, writing books and processing and thinking about it, it was primarily for this idea of how do I own my grief? The reason this step, I think, is so difficult is, again, who, who, who wants to do this? Who wants to go down that alley? Not, not many of us. Think for me, I think with me for just a moment, about um, just the number of losses that, that we could say maybe accumulate over a lifetime, right? Even, you know, devastating losses. You know, it might include the death of a child. Uh, premature death of a spouse, maybe a, a disability or a divorce, could be rape, could be emotional or sexual abuse, maybe it's irreversible cancer, maybe it's infertility, the, the, the shattering of some lifelong dream, a suicide, the betrayal of, of someone who was so close, who walked so closely with you, uh, a miscarriage, Discovery that one of those people who was so big in your life, that role model, uh, is corrupt. 
Or we might even think, you know, my losses are, are, are really insignificant compared to that, and so I don't go down that road. Um, but the truth is, uh, it's equally important to, to grieve over them. Because over time, as we stuff down the tiny, itty-bitty, little, you know, small little things, we, we stuff them down. I love the way that uh, Peter Scazzaro says it. He says this, they gather in our souls like heavy stones that weigh us down. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Over time, those little tiny griefs that, that, that we don't grieve over, those sufferings that we don't grieve over, become like heavy stones that weigh us down. They keep us from walking, essentially. In a, in a healthy relationship with God, the greatest commandment, and a healthy relationship with other people, the second greatest commandment, right? They become obstacles to that. I mean, even, even think about just natural losses, you know, the smaller ones. You think about, you graduate from, you know, from college, you get out of high school, and all of a sudden the financial security that, you know, you thought was going to be there, it's, it's gone. Or something changes in the market, and, and that, that hope that you had, that goal of what was out there, it's just, it's not there anymore. Um, you know, age. I mean, you know, that, that healthy, beautiful skin, remember, that you used to have? I mean, that's, it's not like that anymore, right? Things are changing. That, that ache in your back that just doesn't seem to go away anymore that our, our bodies are slowly, slowly even decaying. Relationships don't work out the way that you had hoped. Um, your children, as you grow older, they just become less dependent. It's not a bad relationship, but it's just, it's, they're less dependent on you, right? And what was there, it's, it's just a loss in your life still. Um, maybe, it's that, maybe it's some long, you had a job in which that, that boss, you had a great relationship and there's, and there's a change in a boss and you no longer have that relationship in your life. Maybe a small group that you're in, it ends. That's been a significant part of your life, and for whatever reason, you're just not meeting anymore. A grandparent passes away in your life. Uh, maybe it's something of just value, you know, photographs. You know, fire destroys them. Uh, a pet dies in our life. These, these things that you might say, well, you know, I guess in the grand scheme of things, I shouldn't complain. But the reality is a loss is a loss. And here's the point. It's important not to calculate a particular loss on some sort of continuum, like, oh, this is, a, this is a public loss or a private loss, or, you know, this was an immediate loss or this was kind of a loss over time, a gradual one. Loss is loss, and here's the most difficult part to swallow. Loss is the norm in life. It's not the exception, is it? Loss is not the exception. It's the norm in life. Often we can think that, that grieving our losses, I would suggest, like, uh, like it's an interruption, you know? I'm doing this whole following Jesus thing, and I'm wanting to grow, and I'm wanting to be a disciple, and I'm wanting him to expand who I am as a person and all this sort of thing. And this whole grieving, it's like interrupting. It's getting in the way of me following Christ. But again, what, here's a question. What, what if, just this is just hypothetically speaking, what if grieving is actually part of the process of discipleship that, that God's planned. What, what if grieving is actually part of how God wants to, to use scripture language, form Christ inside you, right? That's a totally different picture as we think about it. Let me give you just a couple of thoughts that I have as, as we walk through grief here. If you don't grieve, I think, I think here are a couple of consequences. Right? If, if we don't go down this, this difficult path, which I would suggest is a significant, substantial part of our discipleship, if we don't grieve, the first thing is we can't authentically 
or deeply forgive would be the first thing. Now, here I'm speaking of more the, the, the hurts that come as a result of someone has done something to you, and, and, and there's hurt, there's suffering. Um, Lewis Meads has this kind of neat statement. He says, I worry about fast forgiving. <laughs> Isn't that neat? I worry about people forgiving too quickly, he says. Um, do you think that you can forgive quickly in order not to deal with pain? You ever thought of that? Right? Because, see, if you do it fast, you can just kind of, you know, it's done, it's over, I don't have to deal with it, right? But if you actually have to work through it, you have to, enter, you have to like, walk knee-deep into it. So authentic forgiveness, I would suggest, is a journey. And oftentimes, the depth of the, of the wound, the longer the journey. So forgiveness from the heart can be very, very difficult. And we need to, I think... Um, consciously take on that pain. Again, that, that whole concept of owning it. I need to say, this is, this is a reality. This is my pain. I can't avoid it. I can't deny it. I have to say, this is mine, and I have to own it. And that will, again, affect my ability to forgive authentically from the heart versus sort of a superficial forgiveness. The second thing I would suggest is if you don't grieve, you become more susceptible to uh, reckless sins, to, to addictions, even. Um, when, when we don't know how to escape pain in our life, you know, you know, pain, I'm suffering something. When I don't know how to escape pain, um, and, and I'm not dealing with it, I should add, in, in, a, in a way of going before God in grief as we're talking about, I oftentimes look to things around me to, to pacify. Um, even just, you know, momentarily. But it, it, it kind of just stops the pain for a little bit. I don't have to deal with it. And it's, it's usually something dealing with pleasure, right? I mean, good things. You know, it could be, it could be food. Um, it could be something sexual. It could be alcohol. It could be pills. It could be some sort of entertainment in some way. But I, I oftentimes look to things to kind of just momentarily pacify it because I, I'm really not dealing with it. And then, and then also addiction, and again, addiction, broadly speaking, there's a, there's a great book that a friend of mine recommended to me recently. I'm, I, I'm in the middle of reading it right now, and this author, medical doctor, it's called, it's called uh, Grace and Addiction. And he's, he's speaking of this idea of addiction, broadly speaking, and he's saying, here's, here's basically what addiction is or how it works, because he says, you know, we're all, we all engage in addiction, every single one of us. And the way it works is when, when we've been hurt, and it could be from, from God, it could be from another person, a relationship, I had this longing, and it was smashed, it was wounded, and so what I do is I, I, I repress that for that person, the God, person, whatever, and then I find something else, a thing or a person or an experience, or whatever, and I attach my happiness to that. And then that becomes the substitute. And he says that's as most, as most simply as possible, the concept of addiction. And that's where we easily go to when we're in pain and we don't go through that process of grief. We so easily go to those areas because it's a way to even momentarily just pacify the hurt and the pain in our hearts. Another thing I think if, if, if you don't grieve um, and, and share your grief, and I would add this, with appropriate others, um, you, people will never truly know you you will not be known. Do you realize that one of the greatest human desires, this comes across, this is, this is a transcultural desire, is to be known, 
All right? I want people to know me for me. That's like, that's like one of the deepest human desires. Is that me? I hope not. If that's me, you can flag me down or something. But I think, I think there's a deep desire to be known, right, by others. I mean, authentically, who I really am. Nicholas Volterstorff, remember he said this, if, if you want to know who I am, you must know that I am one whose son died. That's a powerful statement. He said, I've taken that into my soul, and that's, that's become part of who I am, and you can't know me apart from that. Um, let me give you kind of an interesting exercise to do. If, if you have, and I would encourage you to do this, you can do this by yourself. If you have like a, like a mentor, a coach in your life, if, if you're involved in a, uh, in a small group where there's authentic vulnerability and, and community there, or, or maybe if you're mentoring someone else, I would encourage you to go to them and do this exercise with them. Um, make, make just a simple timeline, okay? Like, like start at their birth all the way to the present moment and identify and describe um, significant difficulties and, and sad events in their life. Um, and I would suggest that if, if you do this in, in one sitting, if, if you look at each, you will, you will learn more about that person's soul and their life before God than maybe you would an entire year of taking an hour to do that. Because we are, in many respects, a result of the brokenness, who we are as people, the hurts that we've had in our lives. If you don't grieve, another thought, your heart will never fully break in compassion for others. Um, if you've ever met someone who, who has suffered deeply uh, and, and mourned and grieved with God and with his people in, a, in appropriate ways, you've probably met someone who, who's a lot softer than they were before, right? You've, you, you, you've probably met someone who, who you would even say, that's a safe person, right? Like, I could go to them and I could, I could tell them um, I remember Charles Swindoll years ago, him, he, hearing him say, make, make this phrase, and I, I, um, I think I'm still wrestling with this thinking about it, but he says, it's doubtful that God can use anyone greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I think what he's talking about is until a person has entered deep into that grief, God's not able to use them in reaching out toward others as deeply as he will be able to. Uh, Henry Nouwen was, was a, uh, a Catholic priest, left, left his position, this you know, teaching position at, at Harvard. He was this intellectual academic, and, and he, he left this position. He's, he's now passed away, but he, he wrote this book called The Wounded Healer, where he talks about leaving his position and going to a place where, where he essentially went into a home for people with mental disabilities, uh, ones that the world looked at as nothing, and, and he just served them, and he said, I learned more there than I have anywhere else in my entire life. And he says, there is no compassion without many tears. Through grieving, we become a totally different kind of healer. Again, what he calls a wounded healer. Listen to how Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble 
with the comfort we ourselves have received. Isn't that cool? God comforts us so that, for a purpose, an end, so that we in turn can be tools in his hand to, to bring comfort to others. And the reality is, if you want to be used by God, if I want to be used by God, and I'm unwilling to go into what does it mean to really grieve over my loss, I'll never be a sharp tool. I'll never really be able to do it as well. I'll be a blunt tool. I wonder, could you, I wonder if you could even write down, like, could you think about, just for a second, what, what's one thing, a time you went through grief, a time you went through mourning, What's one way that, that you've changed as a result of that? Could you, like, could you think of one example? Would you be able to write something down? This is, this is one way that I think I'm, as a person, just, just a little bit different because of that grief, because of that time of mourning in my life. Have you written that down? Could you write that down? Let me give you an ancient idea that the ancients used of... of going into grief, kind of a one, one how. Pay attention to the book of Psalms. Um, the longest book in the Bible also happens to be, throughout history, the favorite book of the Bible, the book of Psalms. Um, the book of Psalms has uh, Psalms of adoration, adoring God. God, I love you. You're amazing. You're awesome has, has uh, psalms of thanksgiving, thankfulness for what God has done, how he's been faithful in the past and how he's come through, met needs, has, has psalms of wisdom, psalms of repentance, psalms of expressing doubt. But do you know that the psalms of lament outnumber all of the others? In fact, half of the 150 psalms, over half of the 150 psalms, are psalms of lament. And what these psalms of lament do, they, they, they pay attention to the reality that life can be, like, really hard sometimes. Life can be so difficult, even, even brutal. These psalms of lament take notice of the fact that sometimes it kind of feels like God's absent, like, like he's not there when I needed him. They notice when, when circumstances seem to say that God's not even good. He doesn't have my best intentions in mind. He's not looking out for my best. And they cry out to God for comfort. God, I need you. They cry out for care. Listen to some of these. And most of them were written by David. That's also kind of an interesting thing to do is look at, look at the life of someone who has lamented more than anyone. You know, and David's one of those characters. Look at his life. Look, look how he did it. Look how he lived uh, in the, you know, what we call the, the difficult in-between times, right? Um, oftentimes, people will talk about there, there are psalms of, of, of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Did you get that? Psalms of orientation where it's like, God, thank you. This, this is where I'm, I'm oriented to what's going on in my life, where I'm going. Psalms of disorientation, like what in the world just happened? Where are you? What has gone on? And then psalms of reorientation of saying, God, I found you and I was so confused. And, and I'm starting to make sense of, of walking this, this difficult road. Psalm 42, 3, tears have been my food day and night. Psalm 43, 2, why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? 
Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Psalm 77, 8 and 9. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Psalm 88, 6 and 7. What I love, though, is that all the psalms, whether they're psalms of orientation or disorientation or reorientation or whatever, whether these psalms of crying out, it's always disappointment with God. It's disappointment before God. It's taking all of that right to God and saying, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on. Do I need to switch? Sorry about that. Thanks. Is that okay? Can you hear me? A little softer. Okay, maybe it can be turned up just a little bit. Um, Nicholas Walterstorff, the, the gentleman that I, that I was mentioning earlier, when, when he's talking about this whole idea of owning, owning the grief of his son, remember he said, my struggle was to own it, to make it part of my identity. Um, if you want to know who I am, you must know that I'm one whose son has died. And, but, but he finishes with this, and I love this statement. He says, but then to own it redemptively. Isn't that cool? I have to own my grief, but I have to own it redemptively. He says, it takes a long time to learn how to own one's suffering redemptively. One never finishes learning. Um, owning our grief before God allows God to, to, and this is what I think is so cool, to, to redeem our suffering, but never diminish the reality of the evil of what took place. Does that make sense? You know, God says things like, he, he can work all things for our good, but it's not by just saying they're not really that bad from my perspective. He doesn't take away the reality of the evil and the pain, and yet, and yet he beautifies it. There's a, um, if you've ever read uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he, John Bunyan talked about this idea that all the evils of the world, like, like, like the worst things we go through, it's like compost. It's like all this junk, and, and it's horrible, bad stuff, and it's nasty, and it stinks, and it's messy. And yet, what, what God puts, it, puts on top of it over time, it's, over time, it becomes something that's beautiful, and it's gorgeous, but it doesn't take away the reality of the hurt and the devastation and the evil of it. Um, what, one of my favorite authors is um, C.S. Lewis. Like, like He's like my favorite author of all time. And one of his favorite authors was, was this guy named uh, George MacDonald. And George MacDonald was, you know, he's, he's like this Scottish writer that, that Lewis discovered after his time and, and loved and was so inspired by so much of his writing. And George MacDonald tells this story called The Princess and the Goblin. And it's, it's this cool story. There's this little eight-year-old girl, and, and she's a princess, and, and she lives in this palace all by herself. But um, this palace is on top of a mountain. And, and deep in the mountain is, are, are this race of goblins. And, and these goblins hate the king, her father, and, and all of his ancestors, her. And uh, what happens is her, her old, very old grandmother discovers that there's a plan by the goblins to, to kidnap her. And so she learns that she comes to the princess 
And, and she, she gives the princess a little ring that she puts on her finger. And she says, this is kind of like a magic ring. It has a thread tied to it. And she said, I can't see it. She said, no, you can't, but you can feel it. If you feel the thread, she said, and what you need to do is you need to follow the thread. And um, she says, but remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, but you must not doubt the thread. And throughout the story, the thread constantly leads the little eight-year-old princess in like totally unexpected ways, areas that, that she would not choose. And it begins by directing her up the mountain and then into some of the darkest holes in the mountain where she's crawling through these narrow passageways and, and caves further and further into the darkness, into this hollow mountain. And she starts wondering, like, will I ever get out of here? And finally, she reaches, as she's following this thread on this ring, she, she, she reaches this huge pile of stones. And she just begins crying and, and weeping because she realized the thread goes right into the stones. And, and she thinks it's a dead end. So she, she cries, but after a while, she, she starts just one stone at a time, taking one off and taking another off. And, and as she begins to, uh, to remove them one by one, she finds this, this good friend of hers who is trapped behind this wall of stones. And as they find their way out of the mountain, he, he argues that the thread is leading them in directions away from the entrance, just further and deeper in. And the princess whispers this line. She says, I know that, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. And even though it goes against all of her natural instincts, she obeys and, sh and she, she follows this thread. And she finds that slowly this, this fear and this tension, it like kind of eases because she knows that her, her all-knowing grandmother is guiding her by this thread. And throughout the story, the, the goblin's plan is, is exposed and defeated. And what I would suggest that as we, as we do this whole discipleship apprentice thing with Jesus, it's about following him. It's like following a thread and that thread will lead us into some of the darkest places we could imagine, areas that we would say, why would I go there? Why would I possibly do that? That's not toward wholeness. That's not toward health. But maybe that's where God wants to take us because maybe it's only there that rescue happens. Maybe it's only there that, that we find something new. And I just want to pray for us here in a second. For all of us, as we take, again, what I think is maybe the most difficult step that we have in seeking emotionally healthy spirituality of saying, I'm going to be someone who, who is willing to do this grieving thing over losses in my life because I want to be a sharp tool in God's hand. And I want to pray for you if, if you kind of feel like, you know, it's accurate that I'm, I'm like holding on by a thread. That's okay. That's how God's leading you in your life, into those darkest places. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that this is a safe place. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to pretend to be something we are not but that we can authentically be who we are so that you can make us who we can become. God, I, I pray for, for those of us who would say, I am holding on by a thread, 
And I don't want to follow that necessarily into some of those places. And Father, I pray that you would give wisdom, that you would surround people with authentic, true community to enable them, Father, to go to places in their lives where you want to explore and do surgery and dig up stones and, and turn hurt and devastation in the great compost of your economy, God, into something that is beautiful because only you can redeem. That's a word that you created, God. You came up with that idea. So would you redeem the hurts in our lives, God? Would you give us, um, give us the courage to walk into those areas of grief. Show us where we have to go. Thank you that we don't have to do it alone, God. Thank you that you've given us the body of Christ. And as we're reparented in this process of, of finding out what does it mean to, to walk as an adopted son or daughter of the King, that we're not alone and we have your people. And thank you for that great gift. And Father, we, we say as a declaration maybe in faith, some of us, because we don't really know if it's true or not, grief is good for my soul. Grief is good for my soul because my soul is like elastic and when I take it in, it expands and it gets larger. And you want to expand our souls, God. And so we also say, it is well with my soul. Would you with us over these next few minutes in a time, if you need to sit, if you need to stand, that's fine. Can we sing that anthem? It is well with my soul. And maybe that's a way for you to just go to God in the moment and just say, God, would you, would you put birth things in my soul that maybe are not there right now and make me the person you want me to become? And then, and then we'll, we'll come back together and we'll pray. Thank you that we can declare that, God. And we believe, but help our unbelief, God. We say that in a place of desiring to, to be able to say it without reservation, that it is well with our soul, regardless of where you are directing us and guiding us and leading us, that as we go beneath the, the surface of the iceberg of our lives, God, as, as we see areas that are just frightening, Areas that we don't necessarily want to go to as well as beautiful things, God, that speak of your faithfulness and your glory. Help us to be faithful, to look and evaluate at it all. Help us to hold it in open hands before you, God, and allow you to redeem, to turn around, to transform, to renew. God, that streams of living water would flow out from our bellies, that we would be people who are not merely conforming to some outward standard, but are, are just finding almost as a surprise to ourselves, God, new life birthing from within us. That as those streams of living water come out, we sense your spirit calling us and leading us into new areas. God, would you call us into new areas of ministry? People that we can reach out to, God, that we can be that sharp tool in your hand. Maybe you're calling us to minister to someone that we've never, never thought we could do. And yet, kind of like Jacob, we're lame now and, and, and we have a limp, but we find that that person has a limp too and we have the same gait and we can walk with them. Show us what that means, God. We trust you. We follow the thread and we say, it's well with our soul. And we all said together in the powerful, in the awesome 
the matchless name of our God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. As a benediction, let me read Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. You guys love you. Excited to see you next week, not in this room. Okay. We'll see you somewhere else over there. Hey, if you would like a prayer, we would love to pray with you. Our prayer team is going to be up front. Have a fantastic week.